Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 52, brought to you by acmescience.com. That is right. We are back with a brand new episode after a hiatus of way longer than I wanted. But it doesn't matter because this episode features an interview with Kathy O'Neill, mathematician, author, blogger, data scientist, and so many other things. You may know her as the person behind the blog mathbabe.org, or you may just know her for being generally awesome. Well, at least you will definitely know her for that after this interview. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and joining me on the show today is a blogger, a mathematician, and a writer, Kathy O'Neill. Kathy O'Neill, welcome to Strongly Connected Components. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so I uh, was just talking to you uh, off mic. That is that is true. Everyone who's listening, uh, I talk to the guests before I officially talk to the guests. And one thing we were talking about was uh, how important titles seem to be to a lot of people, my, myself included, uh, and what kind of world it is to live in now that you uh, yourself don't actually hold a title. How, how have you found that? You know, it's, it's been really interesting. Um, who cares about that and who really can't, you know, can't give a, give a shit about it. So for example, when I, when I introduced Jordan Allenberg at the joint math meetings, like the person who was in charge of getting my title was really put off by the fact that I didn't have an institution affiliated with me. And I recently worked at Columbia in the journalism school, but that ended in September. But people um, consistently like try to say that I still work there, even though my LinkedIn uh, profile doesn't have that as current. I think people just, they, they ignore the fact that I say writer and blogger and, and data scientist and sort of like scan my LinkedIn profile until they find an institution. And I think it, I mean, I'm not saying it's a deep thought, but it, it's interesting to me how important credentials and affiliations are to people. Another example, which is probably more severe, more serious, is that there's been a couple of um, interesting looking grants that I'm interested in. Uh, that center around data and privacy and long-term cultural effects of the big data movement, which is something I'm interested in. And these grants, but the grants all require that I have a, a, a nonprofit institution to be affiliated with. They expect it need to be at a university. And I'm not at a university. And, you know, they suggest that I pair up with the university in order to apply for these grants, which I could do. But I mean, I guess my larger point is that, like, you know, just because I'm not a university doesn't mean I have good ideas. And moreover, and probably more importantly, like if you have that requirement, what you're doing is precluding the possibility of having someone who is attached to industry or as a self-employed consultant or something from getting those grants. And it's not something they probably even think about. They probably don't even think, oh, we only want academics. We only want people working in the ivory tower to think about how data affects the real world. If you put it that way, it sounds kind of silly, but that's the effect. Anyway, so that's just a, a couple of comments about not being affiliated. I mean, I expect to be affiliated in the future, either with a job or 
a university. I don't even know what I'm going to do next. But the, this sort of intermediate time where I'm just writing my book is it has been interesting. I, it's that's actually something that I myself have run into as well, looking around for grants for, say, mathematical outreach and communications, in that since I do this on my own and am not affiliated, I am also not eligible at all to get any grants. To some extent, you can think of it as a pure guild, like anti-competition, anti-trust issue. Um, you can think of it as like, you know, taxi drivers don't like Uber because taxi drivers have to buy medallions and work within that medallion system. And the medallion system is, to some extent, a quality control system, but in a, a large extent, it's just a way to uh, keep out competition. And I feel like that is largely true about these kinds of grants. It's partly quality control. Like the NSF doesn't want us giving grants to random people who don't actually produce stuff. So just having an affiliation is a signal that they're productive citizens, but partly it's an exclusionary practice that benefits the people that are in charge of it. So I, I'm just saying there's two sides to it. Now, as you, as you mentioned, you have recently worked in uh, academia at the University of Columbia, and you had previously worked in academia a, a while ago, and then you moved to, uh, to work in finance uh, from there. What what kind of made or helped you make that the decision to make that shift? So, I mean, let me give you like a quick background because it's confusing. I confused myself with my own background, but I was a mathematician, you know, got my PhD at Harvard in number theory in 1999. And then I was a postdoc at MIT for a while. Then I got an assistant professorship at Barnard College in New York City in 2005. And then in 2007, I left for all sorts of reasons. Um, I left and worked in finance just in the credit crisis. I worked in finance for four years, first at a hedge fund, then at a risk firm. And then I worked in data science for some years. And then I started writing about data science um, and being a consultant in data science. And more recently, I got a, I sold a book proposal to Random House. So I'm writing a public facing book about the dark side of big data. And then last summer, for just six months, I worked at the journalism school at Columbia starting a new program in data journalism. So it was like a little a little trip back into the academic sphere, although the journalism school is a lot less academic-y than a math department. So in terms of what what inspired me to to start working in business, I think like a, in a very general sense, you could you could say that I'm a risk taker, um, much more than the average person in math in math departments. I'm impatient. The sort of the feedback loop and the, the, just the length of the academic publishing cycle drove me nuts. I also want to feel like I'm affecting the real world. And there was also an element of feeling exploited in the Columbia math department for my organizational skills. And I wanted to go somewhere where I, uh, my organizational and communication skills were rewarded rather than exploited. But, you know, like it, it was funny because I went into finance thinking, oh, here are the risk takers. I can be with my people. But it, it's actually interesting. My experience was not at all that the people working in finance were risk takers. In fact, they were some of the more conservative people I've met. They were really, in fact, kind of worried about much more worried than the average academic is about the sort of the end of the world, at least the end of the economic world as they knew it. And they were like, like you know, furiously saving money for that scenario. So I didn't really find my people 
in finance, even, you know, so when I left the hedge fund, I worked in risk and I would say people in risk are even more risk averse in data science. I worked in a startup. So it was like less risk averse in a certain sense, but they still had it a kind of a weird mentality that I didn't really enjoy so much all the time, which is sort of like ignoring the larger consequences of their actions. And, you know, and I'm, I'm going, I'm just being very brief about my experiences. I would say though, that finally working in the journalism school, I, I did kind of feel like I found my people in the sense that the journalists are really part of the world, really trying to navigate, trying to undercover the truth, hopefully in the best of situations, in the ideal sense, in the ideal world of journalism, they're not conflicted and they have ethics. And I mean, in other words, they don't have sort of commercial interests which overwhelm their ethical interests, which is really wonderful to find those kinds of people. So I, I do feel like as as I become more and more of a journalist writer, and my really my book is kind of like a very, very long form of journalism and data, the, the more I've I've traveled, the more I've found the people that are more like me in that sense. Not sort of like in the academic background sense whatsoever. Of course, most journalists are not PhD mathematicians, but they are people that don't know what their job is going to be next month. And in that sense, they're living off the seat of their pants. And, you know, not in a good way, actually. Journalists, I wish they had more job security, but um, the field is undergoing really big changes right now. But anyway, hopefully that gives you a little light on my, on my reasonings. I, I wanted to track back and, and address one of the comments you made. In in what way were you being felt taken advantage of uh, for your organizational skills in the math department? You know, it's really hard to discuss this without sounding bitter. But let me just preface it by saying that I am not bitter. And I, you know, to some extent I left because I didn't want to become bitter. And I'm sure this uh, this will resonate with some of your listeners but I mean, I just felt like as the uh, only untenured person in my department and one of two women in my department, and I was also a wife in the department. So that was a, another tricky thing to navigate. I was being kind of set up to become the sort of the, what I call the department martyr. And it was especially exacerbated by the fact that the two people that were the current martyrs of the Columbia Math Department were retiring. So I'm, I'm saying like, to some extent, it felt like a conspiracy theory to me to think this, you know, in particular, what I mean by martyr is the person that sort of takes care of undergraduate concerns, including, you know, who's teaching calculus, uh, advising, letter writing, uh, that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I didn't want to be a conspiracy theorist, as I said, but like when I actually got the job in finance, it turned out that I wasn't a conspiracy theorist at all. So again, it wasn't, that wasn't the only reason I I decided to become a business person. I would say I would have, even if I hadn't been sort of feeling kind of set up to be a martyr, I would have felt like this is not my speed. Academics, you know, just, it's not my speed. And I, and I'm somebody who wants it, wants to feel sort of a concrete effect of my actions. And it's hard, it's, it's a harder thing to achieve in mathematics. It's not impossible. Obviously people do make real strides in mathematics. And I, might have been one of them if I had stayed. I don't know. But, you know, you, you just feel like, wow, I really want to have effects. And, you know, of course, I was very naive when I said that to myself, because when, as soon as I left mathematics and became a business person, I realized that those effects could be bad effects. Anyway, I hope I've explained it a little bit about exploitation. It turns out, by the way, like 
my my philosophy since I've had so many jobs in so many different fields since then I you know I've come to the conclusion that you just never you never never get rid of your problems you just get a new set of problems and so I had a certain set of problems in academic math which looking back maybe I could handle now I have a thicker skin I could maybe say no more clearly I could ignore sort of the pressure I was feeling from various people you know I certainly have become much more of an asshole since since then you know what I mean and becoming an asshole isn't isn't a goal for most people <laughs> and it wasn't my goal either but not explicitly but it, once you've seen people misbehave enough you just it nothing surprises you and then you and you realize you know this person is misbehaving to me and I can ignore this one other thing I was, was very interested uh, to see is that you also did some work with the Occupy movement and the alternative banking group. Uh, what what kind of, you know, drew you to taking part in that? So first of all, we still meet every week. Yes, yes. Um, yesterday, we had this amazing meeting that I unfortunately missed because my husband's at a math conference and my youngest son got really sick. So I was home with him. But every week we meet at Columbia and we often have a three-hour meeting, often we have two-hour meetings. So with the third hour happens when we have a guest speaker. So we've had amazing guest speakers over the last three and a half years. So, I mean, if you're asking me why, why did I become involved with Occupy, I think the simple answer is I had left finance and started my Math Bay blog, disgusted with what I found out about the way the world works in finance and like sort of dedicated towards explaining it to the average person. Although the audience I intended for my blog at the first was more like the, the math community. <clears throat> it's since then be, become a little bit more of the average person. And then when Occupy popped up, I sort of I was sort of very interested in it, but not really part of it until I heard. So this, so like, let me backtrack a little bit. One of the conf, one of the first blog posts I ever wrote was called, you know, something along the lines of, let's not ban short selling. So there, I don't know if you remember this, but in the heat of the, of the credit crisis, I think it was France that banned the practice of selling, sh shorting a stock, um, especially a bank stock. I don't think they banned all shorting, but I think they banned shorting for financials, financial, like financial institutions. And the idea there was like, people are being unfair to our banks. That was the political reasoning. My personal opinion, having worked in finance was like, no, people are acknowledging the shit that is going on in finance. And it's, it's a very realistic bet to make if you're betting against a bank. So my, my, basically my blog post said that's a political move. It's not, it's not helping us. It's just sort of like a doctor turning off the heart monitor. And by the way, that wasn't my quote that I think that came from like this MIT professor. But like you don't want your doctor to turn off your heart monitor just because they don't want to hear bad news, right? So that's kind of what that seemed like to me. And about a month later, Occupy was sort of already getting press. And one of the interviews I heard, I think it was on the radio, a journalist asked, asked an occupier, what's the one thing you would do to improve the financial system? And the occupier says, I would ban short selling. And my reaction to this was like, no, that's not the right answer, you know? <laughs> Um, and at that moment I realized, you know, I could either dismiss these guys as ignorant or I could like go help. 
you know, I'm the kind of person that wants to help, especially when I think people are well-meaning instead of jerks. And these guys seemed well-meaning. I met, I had already met them. So I went down there again and tried to really be part of it. And the other thing I realized was that I didn't even know how to answer that question. Like, what's the one thing I would do to improve the financial system? I did not know the answer to that. And I thought it was a really good question, very basic question. And I, I didn't know the answer. And I was like, let's start talking about that. I mean, not that Occupy is going to be in charge of that, but the conversation is, you know, it's an important conversation and it's intriguing. And who better to consider this question than people who are already skeptical of a broken system? So that's basically, I mean, in, in a nutshell, the last three and a half years of my experience in Occupy has been an effort to answer that question. Have, have y'all gotten any closer to an answer to that question? Yes, we have. I mean, I don't think we have uh, narrowed it down to one exact thing, but we do have a, you know, we have a bunch of lists of demands. And so we could, for example, so definitely have a, you know, 10, top 10. And we wrote a book called Occupy Finance, which has those, that list and is available online. So anybody could find it if they just look for the PDF Occupy Finance. It's also, there's a link on my blog, MathBabe. We've come a long way thinking about how this works, what failed, why it failed, what we should do next time it fails, because we think there will be a next time. I mean, and this whole stuff with Greece leaving the euro might trigger something pretty devastating to the world economy. I'm not sure. But I, I do think, you know, these things are cyclical. They're, they're, and right now what we have is like a, we have the United States, you know, have, having propped up the financial system with quantitative easing one, two, and three for the last seven years. It didn't solve any of the problems that sort of generated the crisis. And so we think, you know, it's basically, it's, it's set up to fail again. Well, that that's uh, very reassuring. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, yep. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I mean, I already kind of expected that, but you know what? Uh, we'll, we'll just uh, go on to a different topic. I do think, I mean, look, I mean, I don't mean to be doom and gloom. I think we've made a lot of progress in understanding what went wrong and we know what we should do, you know, it's just that we don't have the political will to do it. And the question is whether another crisis comes along, we'll have that political will. And I don't know the answer to that. And it depends on who's in charge, I think. <laughs> you you mentioned uh, your blog, which is MathBabe, mathbabe.org, uh, which is a very fascinating blog. I've been having fun digging through some of the archives of that, preparing for this interview. And one, one thing that I've noticed is that there are uh, a lot of, of topics. I mean, it, you cover a very, very wide breadth of things, such as advice, diversity, discrimination, feminism, sports, economics. And those are all just on the front page currently. Uh, so why why have you decided to take it so broad in, instead of trying to make it more focused, as you said you kind of thought you were initially trying to do? Well, I mean... So the answer to that is I have no idea why I've done it the way I've done it, but I can explain that I am, I'm doing it for myself. I'm not getting paid for it. It's not a commercial enterprise and it never will be. That's a decision I've made, even though like every now and then, like twice a day, in fact, recently, I get offers to get money for it in various ways, mostly by having other people write blog posts that advertise their product. Not something that interests me at all. But my point is that some people actually do try to make a living off of their blogs and 
in order to do that, you'd have to have consistent themes. You'd have to attract a certain kind of audience. And it's work. <laughs> what I do is not work. What I do is I write to a friend of mine. I always have a friend in mind. I write to a friend of mine about something that's been pissing me off. So for me, it's just literally a creative outlet. And it not just creative, but it sort of re removes the... I don't know if you have this, but when I get you know, my bee in a bonnet about something, it just bothers me and I don't go past it. I just keep thinking, God damn it, don't people understand this? And then like a half an hour later, I'll, I'll find myself in that same cycle of my brain being like, God damn it, don't people understand this? And then I get sick of hearing myself say the same thing twice <laughs> or three times. And then I say, well, this needs to be going a blog post. And then I write it down and I try to explain this, whatever the thing is that people should understand. And I try to explain it to a specific friend of mine, which changes every day, depending on the, this I'm talking about. And then it's, what I found is that as soon as I've written it down and I've blogged it, it's gone from my brain. Not that it's like I can't remember it gone, but I get to move past that cycle and I get to go to the next cycle. And often there is a next cycle and it's much more interesting. It's more nuanced. And part of the reason I can get go ahead is because I have these wonderful readers who I do not specifically curate or attract, but who just comment and give me feedback and tell me why I'm wrong and tell me why I'm right and t tell me where to go to learn more. And it's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. And so I learn, I learn something by writing down the stuff I'm writing. And then I learn a lot more from the comments it engenders. And then I think about that and then I get to the next point. And it, so it's like this live creative process and that's what I mean it to be. I don't mean it to be anything else. And so, so basically the blogs, the blog posts change topics as my brain changes topics. And of course, since I read a lot of news, it's often centered around the stuff I read. And because I'm a mathematician, I interpret the stuff and I'm a data scientist. I interpret the things I read with that, through that lens. So I often have sort of mathematical or data related points to make about about arguments or news news stories so it's all over the place um that's probably not going to change <laughs> by design unless i start only become obsessed with one topic which is not my style and you know i like it that way i mean that's a, kind of a short answer or a long answer to a short question as people have been have been listening to this i'm sure that they will not be surprised that you also uh have no issue taking on rather uh, or taking on things that people might hold uh, in high esteem and having a an opinion that might be a little bit opposite of theirs. Uh, you've you've done this with a take say on a review that you did with Nate Silver's book on the Fields Medal. You've had very strong and loud opinions about uh, women in mathematics. Loud, not in bad. Loud, just as in very very strong. Uh, and what do you, what do you feel is the importance of, of speaking up uh, about these sorts of topics? Well. First of all, I'm a loudmouth. Um, and second of all, I actually, like, interestingly, get much more and better response from strong opinions. So in some sense, being a blogger encourages you to be loud. But other times, I just really care about something, and something really upsets me. So it's not like I'm, I'm doing it for the response. Like, I think the Nate Silver post is a good example, because Nate Silver, in some sense, is my colleague. 
and he's a data journalist and he does, you know, stuff on politics and stuff. He wrote this book and when I picked up the book, again, I'm writing a book on, on the dark side of big data. And when I picked up his book called The Signal and the Noise, I was a little worried that it was, it was my book. Like it was just going to, he was going to like preempt me. But when I read it, it was the opposite of that. It was kind of a um, overly optimistic, positive interpretation of what data does and what it could do. And in particular, he made <laughs> what I consider a fatal mistake of talking through his ass about how better statistical methods could have could have improved this the situation in finance and we wouldn't have a credit crisis. But I had worked in the finance for four years and come to the conclusion after much thinking about it and experience that it wasn't a mathematical failure. The financial crisis wasn't caused by a mathematical failure. It was caused by a political failure. And mathematics was used as a way of hiding and obfuscating that political failure. But like just, just to be a little bit concrete, like Moody's rating agency, and there's like a FCIC Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report with lots of interviews of Moody's employees. So you can just go check that out for yourself. But those guys were basically forced by their boss under threat of firing to lie with models. So when Nate Silver came along and said, if they'd only used Bayesian statistics in their models, we wouldn't have had a financial crisis, which is an unfair and simplistic reading of what he said. He said more than that. I don't want to be a total jerk to him, but like there were elements of that sentiment and it just wasn't, it just wasn't right. And it was, it was just, it was not just not right. It was like a very misleading and dangerous way of thinking about finance. And so when I wrote the, my review of his book, it was scathing, but it wasn't scathing because I wanted attention. It was scathing because I'm like, this is important. We need to understand that there were political problems here, not mathematical problems. I'm just saying that there, there weren't mathematical problems. There were, but that was by design. I, I think I think that it comes through on reading that you are not doing this uh, for attention. That you're doing this because you you legitimately see issues that need to be talked about, and and that's one thing that is very interesting about about reading the things that you are making strong stands on is, is that you don't ever feel that that look at me. I'm over here. I'm talking really loud. I want you to look at me. Feeling. Yeah, I mean, and let's go back to this question that you originally asked me about having a strong voice with, with respect to that, um, women in general don't do that. So I'm kind of rare in that sense, I realize. And one of the ways I do it, at least internally to my, you know, my internal thinking around it is I don't think about it as I want, I want to say this, you know, I think about the idea itself and the importance of the idea itself. And I just try to give that idea some space, if that makes any sense. I feel like I'm a, more like a conduit for import, these ideas that I think are important than, I, than it's like really about me at all. Uh, uh, changing tax a little bit, it's still about your blog, but about a different thing on your blog. Uh, who is Aunt Pythia? Aunt Pythia is a, uh, an alternative persona that I like to put on on Saturday mornings. And, and what does she do? Um, oh, she gives advice on Saturday mornings to my blog on my, <clears throat> on MathBabe. So she has her own advice column and, and on Pythia sort of sprung out of the, out of the sort of constant bombardment that I was under 
after having written my math paper for a couple of years that just people constantly asking me questions, like advice questions, which at first kind of surprised me. I was like, why are these people you know, like, just because <laughs> I, I make uh, like a brain fart on my computer every morning. Why do people think that I can help them with their careers or their love lives? But, uh, you know, actually I realized that I do that all the time. Like, when I walk around, I just give people advice. I'm one of those loudmouth people who gives advice constantly. I am like that. At least part of me is like that. And then I realized I just needed, I needed to channel that part of me and that it would actually serve another purpose. Well, first of all, it's fun. It's really, really fun. <laughs> I've always read advice columns and I've always enjoyed them. And I've always, <laughs> you know, I've always been like, I could, I could have given better advice than that, you know, um, especially, especially around various issues of like sexual um, acceptance of yourself, mostly yourself. And also since I'm like a fat woman and I'm a, I'm a woman in math, I've been through all that, you know, I've been through the like, Oh my God, no one's ever going to find me attractive because I'm fat or Oh my God, no one's ever going to think I'm smart because I'm a woman. Like I've been through all that and I have things to say. I have advice anyway. So on Pythia is, is, <laughs> I would say she's like sassy and obnoxious, but really cares about the questions and cares about the people asking them and does her best to actually try to be helpful in an incredibly non worshipful way. You know, there's just, there's like no, nothing is, is off limits with Ampithia, which is fun. It's really fun. And I'm glad that I've, you know, kept her to one day a week because she really would take over if I let her. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is this something that if, if you weren't uh, watching it or if you were going to do a tight focus and monetize, it would just be antpythia.com? Um, you know, I don't, I, I haven't even, I am so against <laughs> that idea. I just don't know. I don't know what I would do. I, I, I will admit that I met you for about uh, 25 seconds uh, last month uh, in San Antonio when we were at the joint mathematics meeting, cause you were, uh, giving, giving a talk on, uh, data journalism. And I was hoping to, to finish up the interview talking a bit about, uh, what you spoke about at that talk. Uh, and it's specifically, you're talking about some, uh, some problems with data journalism and, and some possible ways forward to, to make it better and to help make the, uh, coverage of mathematics in uh, journalism a bit better. So, uh, could you start off by telling me a little bit about the authority of the inscrutable? Which is just a great turn of phrase, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was my advisor Barry Mazur's phrase, and you know he told me he recognized it because he has, I think, a brother-in-law who's a lawyer who would every now and then show him law articles that had integrals in them. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, I mean, so academic law journal articles that in the middle of a, an argument would suddenly break out into a mathematical formula with <laughs> integral signs. And it, you know, he, his brother-in-law, I think it was his brother-in-law would ask him like, what does this mean? Cause I don't read math and he would read it and interpret it. And it would mean exactly the same thing that the sentence in the paragraph had said, like, in other words, it was utterly entirely redundant <laughs> to the argument, but it was added for what reason, you know? Well, because it, you know, added authority, authority of the inscrutable. Like, yes, these are symbols that you don't understand, but don't I seem smart now? It's, uh, it's ironic that this is used. This is used very widely. I mean, needless to say, it's not just in law school articles, 
Um, it happens all over the place all the time, and it doesn't have to be an integral sign. There was actually a study done, though, where some people in social science added actually irrelevant mathematical formulas to papers and then had like a, a double-blind study where the people rated the papers that had extra unintelligible mathematical formulas, they rated them more authoritative. So this is like just a widely understood thing by marketers. But, you know, the ir irony of it, Samuel, I'm sure you, you would agree, is that mathematicians use notation to make things understandable. In fact, I teach high school math camp sometimes, the Hampshire College Summer Studies in Math, which I went to in, as a high school student. And we have a lot of fun with notation. We talk about the goals for notation, and then we invent our own notation for things. You know, we like, for example, when we talk about equivalence relations, in mathematics, standard mathematical notation for equivalence relations is like a tilde or twiddle. But we, you know, like the point is that to these kids who are 15, 16, they don't know what that, that standard notation is. And they don't even know why they should have notation. So we talk about why would you have notation? Well, it's mostly because you don't want to have to write out the phrase is equivalent to many, many, many times on one blackboard. And so you just want to replace that entire phrase with one symbol. And so like that, that sort of approach to notation where you're very explicitly trying to make things universally understood by the audience that you have in mind is exactly the opposite of the authority of the inscrutable. And it's really damaging. It's, it, it's widely used. So yeah, we talk about that. Um, I talk about that in my book because it's, it's used with respect to getting the public to trust an untrustworthy mathematical object because it is inscrutable. You mentioned a few different reasons why journalists might have some problems currently covering uh, data and, and mathematics. And one of those, I mean, beyond just the authority of the inscrutable, was the problem of the faceless victim. And so, so what do you mean? Uh, how, can, how can a victim not, not have a face? There's a lot of various, I mean, there's a lot of important journalistic tropes, which I learned about when I was at the journalism school, that are really damaging for good journalism in, in, in the sense that I care about. I care about bad consequences of big data models. And that kind, the kind of thing I'm talking about is basically a, a sort of, it's called digital profiling because people can infer your race and your gender and your age based on your, your browsing history. If your browsing history is apparent to an advertiser, then they can profile you before showing you an ad or before showing you a credit card offer. I mean, the point is that ads, people think of ads as like opportunities to buy little things, but like it's actually much larger than that if you, if you understand how it's used in credit card offers, for example. So let's leave that there. But my point is that the tropes in journalism sort of almost make it impossible for journalists to investigate this problem. Because in journalism, you're supposed to know who, you're supposed to, you know, before you get a story past your editor, your pitch to your editor has to include the victim. It has to include, a, like, a, it's called putting a face on the story. You know, if there is a victim, if the story is about something going wrong. Because there's also other approaches to journalism, uh, different kinds of stories, in other words. But if there's something going wrong, then you either have to find the bad guy who did it, or you have to have to find the victim. And in these situations, like, it's really hard for both sides, you know, like exactly who did this, it wasn't probably intentional, because they were just, you know, quote, unquote, following the data, 
And moreover, it's very, very difficult to find the person who was who is profiled negatively because those people all, you know, their experience is that they're just on the web and they, you know, they see what they see and they don't know that if they were, if they had a different profile, they would have seen something else. You know, in other words, nobody actually has the sort of alternative universe experience of seeing how, how things would have played out if they had, if they had been a different person. So nobody considers themselves a victim. So there's no recognized, there's no recognition of that victimhood. So journalists can't write that story, but that doesn't mean that story isn't important. And it doesn't mean that story doesn't have a large scale effect on culture. Um, it just means that it's not going to, it's not going to be easy to report on. And there's lots of other things that make it hard too. Like the companies that make credit card offers like capital one or something, they don't, they don't give access to their algorithms to journalists anyway. And even if they did, here's another story. Another problem is that journalists, generally speaking, aren't technical enough to understand um, those algorithms. Yeah. I, most people aren't, in fact. So it's not. This is not to say that journalists don't do an amazing job with the tools they have. It's it's more to say that the tools that are that are available to journalists aren't sufficient to actually solve every problem. With these tools that exist, what would the best kind of path forward to make this uh, data journalism better? I mean, I think data journalism has a lot of potential, even though I just mentioned a couple of things that it probably won't reach. In fact, like some data journalism is, is all about um, reverse engineering algorithms or understanding statistical profiling. I could give you a couple of examples of it actually working even in spite of what I just said. So for example, there's, you know, there's, um, I think it was a wall street journal article that, that somehow understood these pricing algorithm for staples.com and figured out that poorer people are more likely to have to pay more for things on staples. And so there was no specific victim there, but you know, they, they managed to sort of statistically find victims in poorer neighborhoods. And another example was WNYC that had, that had the statistics on who was being arrested for drug possession, black versus white teenage boys, when in fact we know that the drug use is approximately equivalent, the drug arrests are four times more likely to be black, if I remember that statistic correctly. But in other words, like, again, it's not, who's the victim in that situation? I mean, that's even harder because after all, everyone who's arrested for drug possession is committing a crime. Um, so it's, it's difficult when you, when you focus on the individual to say this person's a victim. But if you look at the aggregate statistics, you realize, okay, they're all criminals who got arrested, but there's probably lots of criminals that aren't being arrested. So there's disparate treatment. So I hope that a couple that's understandable as two examples where it has been successful. But I mean, beyond that, like you, you know, you've already seen you know, the upshot New York Times, you see 538, you see Vox, you see ProPublica, lots of fantastic examples of good data journalism that is pushing the envelope of like what you what is news and pushing the public to understand statistics, which is also exciting. It's in fact, I think it's pushing the public enough so that we really have to start thinking about how we teach mathematics to high school kids, because I feel like it's becoming more and more obvious that we don't need calculus so much as we need good statistics, just to, in order to read the newspaper. Very, very true. Now I have, I have one last question. It also comes uh, from the talk that you gave at the joint meetings, which you can find the uh, 
all the slides for my guest talk on uh, a link from her website uh, for that talk. And that is the map of mathematics that you proposed. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about this map? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I didn't mention in my list of things that are kind of hard to reach for journalism is mathematics, because there always has to be a face on the story. And obviously, when there's a profile of a mathematician, it's usually not th that there's a victim. Usually, it's it's a different kind of story. But there's not that many storylines story available to journalists. And I could go into it, but I won't because the, the end of the, at the end of the day, what usually happens is that when you profile a mathematician as a journalist, you end up talking about what the mathematician had for breakfast on the day that they proved something big. And it's just not about mathematics. It's not, it's, and it's always disappointing to me as a mathematician, like, well, you haven't explained mathematics at all. You just talked about this person and that's bad and it's not it's even even other scientists they do try to give some idea especially if it's biology like what this person actually studies even if it's not at the level of complexity of the actual breakthrough at the very least they try to give some sense of what the science actually says whereas that just never true for mathematics almost never true although there are there are mathematical journalists inside mathematics that speak to each other, like you know, Quanta or, or the AMS or notices, and they do a great job. But for the public, it's really disappointing. And the other thing is, um, and I've, I've mentioned, I think you mentioned that I wrote about the Fields Medal. Like, I don't like the Fields Medal. I think it's a problem for mathematics that journalists pick up on the Fields Medal every time it's issued and act, and they sort of like what they do is double down on the myth that. Mathematics is a solitary activity, which it's not. It's a very, very large collaborative and ancient art, which we should appreciate. And I think the, my map of mathematics, finally getting to your, answer, your question, is my idea at an attempt to answer, to sort of bring in this ancient and collaborative art into the discussion when it comes to journalism for the public. Which is to say, I think we can make, we can build something as mathematicians in the mathematical community. We can build something, which I call the map of mathematics, so that the, the story that the journalists will see will come from that, that we've created. So I, my suggestion is that we, we build a map, which is just a graph really, but it's a really good, <laughs> a really important graph of results, maybe theorems, maybe papers where you can sort of identify a field by a certain clustering of results that are tied together because one result relies on another. So there'll be an arrow from one to the other, you know, so we could cluster a field together. We could turn that into one point if we need to, so that it's easier to see them, see the map. I also think that we could add, we could, we could think about that over time and see how that map grows over time. And, you know, see how in 1850 there were not very many mathematicians and how we've had an explosion in sort of the golden age of mathematics, which is right now. I also feel like we could have conjectures as a sort of part of that map in a different color. Maybe the nodes would be a different color. These are conjectures. And then when a new result comes in, you'd often see the way you could see sort of physically see how that result has sort of confirmed all these conjectures. Like just imagine the sort of Riemann hypothesis as a node and all the different results it would spawn if we knew the Riemann hypothesis, that just to give you an idea of what that would sort of visually result in. And so if we had this map of mathematics, my, my point is it would sort of 
intrinsically explain the collaborative nature of mathematics. It would intrinsically explain the, um, the history of mathematics. The story would be about the mathematics rather than about the mathematician and their breakfast. And I think that's, I think that would be great for math. Uh, well, uh, Kathy O'Neill, blogger at mathbabe.org, uh, data scientist, mathematician, writer, a bunch of other things. Uh, thank you for being on Strongly Connected Components with me today. Thanks, Sam. That is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. The show page over at acmescience.com is where you can find more information about Kathy O'Neill. The intro music was the song Pie by Hard and Firm off their album Horses and Grasses. And the song that I'm speaking over right now is by Science CTN. You can find them over at SoundCloud. And the name is The Ants Go Jumping. I, I really like it. That's, that's, why it's the, that's why it's the new outro music. Isn't it, isn't it fun? Come on, guys. It's fun, right? As always, iTunes reviews uh, would be greatly appreciated. As a matter of fact, if you leave a review of the show, I will thank you on the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. And as always, this podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike License. Meaning that as long as you say you got it from us, you can remix and do with it what you will. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you have a matherific week. <laughs>